0: Father, we do recognize that it is through the work of Christ that the veil was torn from top to bottom and we have access. We might come confidently and boldly before you, before the throne of grace to find our help in time of need. Father, not based on our own standing, not based on our own merit, but based solely on the work of Christ on our behalf. And in that, Lord, may we rejoice as we've been singing, may we gain a glimpse of your glory May your spirit take the word this morning and change us, transform us, so that some might come from death to life, and so that those who have moved from death to life might be conformed even to a greater degree into the image of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Can Turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll be in verses 43 through 45 this morning. Thank you, Neil, for reading that for us. Why do I do what I do? Why do I say what I say? These sorts of questions have been answered in in a variety of ways in the modern era. Some have proposed to us that we do what we do and we say what we say because we've been conditioned to do so. Powerful cultural and societal forces have put pressure on us so that we are helplessly shaped into our responses. Others have argued that we do what we do and we say what we say based on the amount of needs that we have and the amount of needs that we have fulfilled. The more needs that we have met, the more well-adjusted we become in our behavior. Others, like Sigmund Freud, who has powerfully shaped our culture with the idea that we do what we do based on impulses that develop early, early in our infancy and in our childhood that follow us as we grow into adults and they drive what we do and what we say. Others would want to pin what we do and what we say on our bodies. God has made me this way, or this is just the way I'm wired. I don't want to deny that sometimes the body has effects on the the things that we do. If you've ever visited someone in the hospital that has a UTI, sometimes that can do some funny things and they can act a little uh, wild. But when it comes to the things that God has defined as righteousness and and God has defined as sin, it's not our bodies that are pushing us in in that direction. Not surprisingly, the, the Bible offers us a fuller, richer understanding of, of what we are and why we do what we do. In fact, Dave Pallison said of all these different systems that seek to undermine God's word, he says, the Bible is the anvil that has worn out a thousand hammers. Any system that seeks to undermine then who God is and seeks to understand who man is apart from scripture will inevitably lead to error. So we come to our text this morning and submitting ourselves not to pop culture, submitting ourselves not to pop psychology, but to the word of God. But we also come with the intent and hope and prayer that we will do more than gain some sense of knowledge, that we will be better at arguing. That's not the goal. The goal actually this morning is that we would become more like Christ himself, that we would be powerfully shaped by the Holy Spirit, through his word, that we might become like Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal. Not to argue, but to be changed. So Jesus begins this portion of his sermon with a couple of illustrations about fruit and trees. The fruit on the tree reveals the nature of the tree. So then therefore, Jesus is challenging, I think in context, we'll see this in a minute, Jesus challenges the disciples to inspect the the fruit of their lives, to see what their nature is. So point number one, I've sort of worded it to kind of capture a little bit of the context uh, from two weeks ago when I was last here. So you'll notice that language in point number one, removing the beam from your own eye, that's from the previous paragraph, requires inspecting the fruit of your life. Now, why am, I, why am I reaching? Why am I trying to bring last time's passage into this? Well, because in verse 43, it starts with four. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. That 4 that begins verse 43 connects it back to the previous text that we looked at a couple weeks ago. We're still in the middle of of Jesus' sermon on the plain. He had chosen the 12 disciples to be the official 12, the disciples. He comes down off the mountain. He begins to instruct the crowd that includes the disciples, some other followers of Jesus, and, and a bunch of people who are there who are undecided about Jesus. We're still in the middle of this sermon, and we've sort of slowed down a little bit as we've walked through the book of Luke. We've taken this in smaller chunks, and when we do that, we need then to be careful not to lose the larger picture of what Jesus is up to in this sermon. So last time we were together, we saw that Jesus was condemning this judgmentalism, not that we can't make moral judgments, we must, although many would claim that's exactly how we should live and what we should do. We must make moral judgments. What he is condemning is is a judgmentalism, a a condemning attitude that views others as as beyond the reach of God's grace. We said that Jesus is condemning, seeking status by negation, that if I can belittle you, I can elevate myself to a status that, that I am now better than you. So instead of doing that, Jesus says, remove the the beam that's in your own eye before you seek to remove the speck from the eye of your brother. So this is the context in which we step into this morning, in which Jesus is speaking about the the good tree uh, bearing good fruit. So if the disciples are going to rid themselves of the beam in their own eye, they must begin by examining the fruit of their life. So in context, don't be first and foremost a criticizer, a critiquer of the fruit of others. You can be a fruit inspector, but make sure you're inspecting your own fruit, examining your own life. Now fruit is one of those words that, that most of us, many of us are familiar with. It's used often in Scripture. So some of us kind of naturally ha- have learned over time to understand what is meant by fruit. But if you're if you're new to the Bible, if you're just kind of working your way through Scripture, just learning some of these things, fruit here and in many other places in the Bible is a picture of our outward uh, deeds, our outward speech. It's the produce of your Life, the product of your life. If you remember, if you've been with us, I recognize some of you are just popping in on vacation. We're glad you're here. Thank you for stopping in. But if you've been with us through this series, back in Luke 3, when John the Baptist was preaching, he charged the crowds to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So there's this inward, there's this heart change of turning from sin and turning to God. Now, bear fruit according to, in accordance with, in keeping with repentance. And in that context, it was sharing with those who are in need. If someone needs a tunic and you have one, give it to them. To the tax collectors, he said, hey, why don't you stop abusing people and taking advantage of people for your own selfish gain? That would be a fruit of a repentant heart. the soldiers he says stop shaking people down stop using your authority to abuse people and serve yourself that would be a fruit that demonstrates repentance so the fruit of your life is your deeds jeremiah 17 verse 10 uses it this way makes this connection between fruit and deeds i the lord search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Again, in Jeremiah 21, God warns the house of Judah, I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds. So this fruit is an outward demonstration of what is in our heart. We'll see that in a minute. In verse 45, Jesus connects it specifically to our, our words, to our speech. So the bad fruit in in view here, you know, in Scripture, bad fruit could be any sort of sin. Bad fruit, in in this context, coming on the heels of of what Jesus has just said in this sermon, the bad fruit is the behavior that's exemplified by the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. It's this condemning others. It's slandering others to elevate myself. It's it's a self-righteousness. The way of the Pharisee, Jesus has warned, the blind lead the blind into a, a pit. The way of the Pharisee only produces the bad fruit of judgmentalism and, self, and condemning and self righteousness. So instead, the challenge for followers of Jesus is to reject the way of self righteousness, to listen to Jesus. To become like him as the one who only ever and always produced the fruit of righteousness. It's to become like Christ. And he is not um, the Pharisee. Jesus is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast Love And therefore, He is worthy of our heart. He is worthy of our love. He is worthy of our devotion. We have to dedicate ourselves to Him and seek to become like Him. So why all the emphasis on the fruit? Because our fruit then reveals our nature. Our fruit reveals our nature. That is the principle that Jesus is laying down here for us this morning. A tree produces fruit consistent with the type of tree that it is. A good tree does not produce bad fruit, nor does a, good, a bad tree produce good... You know what I'm saying. <laughs> to expect otherwise, to expect otherwise, to expect a bad tree to produce good fruit would be, if you look in the next verse there in verse 44, it would be to expect apples to grow out of an orange tree. It's impossible. It can't happen. You can know a tree then by its fruit. Figs don't grow out of thorn bushes, and grapes don't grow from a bramble bush. I'm not much of an arborist. Some of you love trees and can point at a tree and say, I know what kind of tree that is. That's not me, but if I see apples growing on a tree, you know, I can make an educated guess. I bet that's an apple tree. So just like then fruit trees produce fruit consistent with what they are, so we produce fruit consistent with who we are. So in the same way, we don't go to the grape vineyard if we want to make apple pie, We don't look to the world or to the unregenerate person and expect to see the fruit of righteousness. This is why, as a a church, when we've had to do the heartbreaking, heart-rending work of church discipline, the last step, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, is to treat someone as a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, to treat someone as if they are an unbeliever. Why? Well, if the fruit of someone's life is unrepentance and persisting in sinful living, then Jesus has given the church the authority to say, we, just, we can't affirm you as a believer anymore because the fruit of your life is suggesting that you don't know Christ. Now, to treat someone as an unbeliever doesn't mean we don't want to continue to pursue them we don't it's that our our disposition changes we want them to come to know Jesus we want them to repent unto salvation because the fruit of their life is uh, announcing that they don't know Christ now notice also that what needs to change at the most fundamental level is not the fruit and Neil prayed this perfectly earlier. I, sometimes I get a little nervous when people are praying through the text, like, man, I hope that's the way I'm about to get up there and preach the text. But Neil nailed this right on the head. What needs to change at the most fundamental level is not the fruit, but the tree. Imagine you've got this beautiful pear tree in, in your yard, but it only produces nasty, rotten, twisted pears. They're, they're inedible. They're useless pears. And you think, I I know how to fix this. So you get in your car and you go down to Lynn's Dakota Mart and you buy three bags of the most beautiful pears that you've ever seen. You pick up some twist ties and you drop by Ace and buy a 10-foot ladder. And you go up and you twist all these. You use those little twist ties and you attach all these beautiful pears to this useless tree. Have you really affected change? Have you really done what is necessary? That is what we might call legalistic self-righteousness, trying to beautify a no-good, useless tree. It's like tying on good fruit to a bad tree that has really accomplished nothing. What needs to happen is the tree needs to be made new. It really needs to be uprooted and replaced. It needs a total restoration. And as we think about it, as we apply this to our salvation, which is what Jesus is driving at here, you and I have as much power to bring about our own salvation as an apple tree has the power to become an orange tree. This is God's work. Only the Lord of the universe can bring about the change that we need. We needed God to bring about the sort of change that only the sovereign one of the universe could bring about. We needed to move from death to life. We needed to move from a a stance of enmity towards God to love of God. We needed to be given a new nature and have the old nature put to death in order to then produce the fruit of righteousness we needed to become a new creation in Christ. So if you're popping in with us this morning, or, or, or you've grown up in the church, you've never received Christ as Savior, what you really need is for God to work in you to bring about this new life. Quit thinking that it's about this, this beautifying my life and earning some sort of acceptance before God. This is His work. He can produce in us this new nature that then produces the fruit of righteousness. He can make you new in Christ. Then you are capable of walking in true righteousness, in true obedience to the Lord. So praise God that he is in the business of transforming people's nature, transforming people's hearts. If you are a Christian this morning... If you've turned from your sin and you've trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf for your sins, you've thrown yourself at His mercy, you've let go of your sin and your sense of self-righteousness, so many things happened to you the moment God saved you. You were forgiven, you were credited with the righteousness of Christ, you were adopted as a child of God, all all of this through union with Christ. And one of the things that happened to you is you were given a new nature. That's why I won't talk about a believer's sin nature. I believe we've been given a new nature. Yes, we wrestle with the flesh, but the old man has been put to death. He's been crucified in Romans 6. We've been raised with Christ to life. One of the things that happened to you when God saved you is that He gave you a new heart. In Ezekiel 36, God is speaking to the nation of Israel that He will will do this work in them for the sake of His name among the nations. And He describes His saving work this way, I will sprinkle clean water on you, that is to purify you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my, capital S, spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the regenerating work of God, when He makes someone alive, He gives them a new spirit. He gives them a new heart. He places the Holy Spirit within them. If you've come to Christ this morning, you have a new heart. You're a new creature in Christ. You have the Spirit of God within you. And at some level, and we, we, we struggle, we wrestle against the flesh, and we still sin way more than we would like. But at some level, you begin producing fruit that is consistent with your new nature. That's why James unashamedly can say, faith without works is dead. So what do we do? Well, we we can examine ourselves. We can examine ourselves because our fruit reveals who we truly are. The presence or lack of obedience to God or fruit is one of the primary ways in scripture we're called to examine ourselves. Now if you were in my the breakout that I was able to lead at the Biblical Counseling Conference, you may have seen some of this from even from Romans chapter 8. That you know, so many times, at least sort of in the context that I was in for a while in, in churches when I first came to Christ, it was, uh, you know, you, you're just so much leaning on your past experience of coming to Jesus. So if you didn't have this huge altar call weeping uh, moment, then man, you are always going to wrestle with your assurance, and, and I did. But as I began to dive into Scripture, I realized there's, there's a couple things that God has given us as the basis for our assurance. The first is the gospel itself. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, so the, the primary basis of my assurance of salvation should not be about me or, or, or my ability or the strength of my faith when I, when I made a profession. No, my confidence is actually in Christ Himself that if I am trusting in Him, He has removed from me the condemnation that I deserve. The second, though, is this. The, the, the second basis that God's Word gives us is the fruit of our lives. In the context of the fruit of the new nature, um, I think what Jesus has been saying in this Sermon on the Plain, what, what would this look like? What would this fruit be? Well, specifically in Luke 6, it would be a gracious spirit, a gracious attitude towards others because we recognize that we've been shown incredible grace in Christ, it would be a forgiveness, a, a forgiving attitude and disposition towards others because I have been forgiven by Christ. It's a humility and a recognition that my sin is my biggest problem, not someone else's sin. Now, we don't do this perfectly for sure. We don't even do it well at times. It's, I'm not suggesting a believer can't be Entrapped in some sense. In Galatians 6, we restore brothers who are trapped. But some questions we should consider is, are we we even pursuing this gracious forgiveness, this, this humility? Are we growing in our humility before God? Are we convicted of our pride and our judgmentalism? A consistent, unrepentant hypocrisy that only sees other people's sins reveals the, the, the true nature of the person. Now, I said that carefully on purpose. A consistent, unrepentant hypocrisy that only sees other people's sins reveals that the person is truly yet to understand the Jesus they claim to know and love. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. One commentator said it this way. Let it be a settled principle again in our religion. That's, that's Christianity. I know people like to, they hate that word, but James uses it, so I'm okay with it. That when a man's general conversation is ungodly, his heart is graceless and unconverted, let us not give way to the vulgar notion that no one can know anything of the state of another's heart. And that although men are living wickedly, they have, not good, they have got good hearts at the bottom. He's saying, don't, don't look at somebody who lives a completely wicked life and say, well, he's got a good heart. This is completely contradictory to what Jesus is saying. Such notions are flatly contradictory to our Lord's teaching. Is the general tone of a man's communication carnal, worldly, irreligious, godless, or profane? then let us understand that this is the state of his heart. It's a sobering warning. If, if our conversation, if our, if our speech, yes, but our, our lifestyle is carnal, then we have no basis to, to believe that we know Christ as Savior. But if I'm, if I'm growing in Christ, if you're growing in Christ, if you're learning over the course of your life to hate your own sin, if you're becoming a more gracious person, if you're learning self-control, then it can be a great source of assurance for you. And again, if you were at the counseling conference, you may have heard me say this too, but I would encourage you uh, to examine the fruit of your own life. If you're wondering, man, man, how am I growing? Am I demonstrating likeness here? I would encourage you to enlist the church on your behalf. To go to a brother or sister that loves God, and they love you, and say, what do you see in me? What do you see in me? Because what, what can happen is as you mature in Christ... You actually become more sensitive to your sin. And if you're growing in the Lord, you probably feel like a much bigger sinner today than you did when you were first saved. Why? Because you're you're more aware of the word, you're more aware of God's holiness. You you have all of this, this knowledge that you've taken to heart about who God is and what he's like. And so some of you, some of you may be so sensitive to that that you just you kind of self-condemn and say, Oh, I need to be saved. Well, enlist somebody that loves you and loves the Lord. And ask them if they're seeing the fruit of Christ in your life. You need others in your life, not just to see sin that you don't see, but maybe to see ways that you please God that you don't see clearly. So Jesus, connecting these dots, that the tree bears fruit consistent with its nature. So we bear fruit consistent with our nature. We ought to examine the fruit of our lives, Because the fruit of our lives demonstrates our heart. Our fruit, our conduct, our speech flows from the heart and therefore reveals the heart. So so you have these two illustrations in verses 43 and 44. And then in verse 45, Jesus kind of nails us with the teaching in verse 45. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So again, we've we've been saying this this new nature comes only by God. It's not by our own efforts. So don't hear this good person talk and think that it's, it's earning my own righteousness before God. It's that the good person produces good fruit. Where? From the treasure of his heart. I think biblically speaking, we can say with confidence that the heart is the most important word in the Bible to describe your inner life, who you are inside. Heart in the Bible is this, is this big term that captures so much more than, than the way heart is used in our culture today to refer primarily to emotions. Heart in the Bible. Captures everything about you that's immaterial. Paul calls it the inner man in Ephesians three. I pray that you might be strengthened uh, in your inner man, he prays. The heart then is the center of who we are. It is the source of our life. You might think of it as the control center of each and every person is the heart. John Owen said, the heart is the source of motives, the seed of passions. The center of the thought process is the spring of the conscience. Another writer says, as goes the heart, so goes the man. The heart in the Bible consists of what we, what we think, what we desire. It consists of our will, what we What we choose. So our mind, our affections, or our desires, our will is all wrapped up in this word heart. It's your inner man. It's everything that is not physical about you. So our mind, our desires, our will, or we, we, you could just say our heart, is directed towards something. That's what Jesus is calling the, the treasure here of his heart in verse 45. The word Treasure, then, has less to do with like gold and, and precious jewels and, and, and diamonds. Really, it's more like a treasure room, a, a storehouse. And so what Jesus is getting at is what fills the storehouse of your heart determines your behavior. So it makes sense, then, that over and over in the Bible, we're called to store up God's Word where in our hearts so that we might not sin against God. Paul would pray for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart are open, that you might know um, your calling, that you might know the riches of his inheritance in the saints, and that you might know the greatness of his power towards those who believe. I pray that the eyes of your heart are open so that you might know these things that are true about Christ and about God and about the salvation that he is giving us, that he has given us. A heart, then being renewed by the word, a heart set on the gospel of Christ, a heart that has been given a glimpse by God of the glory of the gospel, then produces fruit, uh, the fruit of good works, the fruit of righteousness, the good person, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good but the evil person produces evil out of what the evil treasure of his heart the bible says that the heart of the the one who is outside of christ is darkened in it's understanding the eyes of the heart are blinded in second corinthians 4 4 from seeing the glory of the gospel in the face of jesus christ Their thinking is futile. It's not that a a person outside of Christ cannot do moral things. They cannot be a moral person. It's that they, they do not act for the glory of God. So even the outwardly good things that they do fall far, far short of God's good pleasure. So... It is from our heart that our life springs. It is from our heart that these, this fruit is produced. We could go to other passages where, in Mark, Jesus says, out of, out of the heart come murder, theft, adulteries, and all these multitude of sins. Where do they come from? They come from the heart. In James 4, where is this fighting coming from? Well, it's, is, is it not coming from the lust, the passions? Well, where do the lust and the passions reside? They reside in, in the heart. The principle then is that our hearts we are actively thinking we're actively desiring, we are actively choosing, and out of that flows our actions and our speech. We are not passive in this our hearts are, are active. We could give a couple of quick examples here to try to illustrate you might think of of tendency to have your heart set on something like comfort. You see, I I want this. I want life to go my way on my terms according to my agenda. And so it's dangerous for me to allow this, this comfort to become the thing that I set my heart on. It becomes the treasure of my heart. I become anxious about protecting my personal comfort. So when I have my week all planned out, I can manage this week. I've got it all structured. This is the way I want. And boom, I've got to be in Missouri for a funeral. And there's going to be a bunch of people under one roof. And too many of them are going to bring their dogs. And I left my dress clothes at the house. If I allow in that moment comfort, comfort to be the thing that that rules me, then I'm going to be short with people. I'm going to be grumpy with others. I'm going to be ultimately unloving towards others. I'm going to be living for myself in a day that should have absolutely nothing to do with me. One more, the example of acceptance. Acceptance. We want people to like us, which you shouldn't have the opposite goal. You shouldn't want people to hate you. But it can quickly become a driving force in our interactions with others. We might think deep in our soul that, man, I know my brother needs to hear this this word, I know that I should say this to him, but man, I don't know how he's going to respond, and I begin to fear the opinion of others, and I can be controlled by what others think instead of being controlled by the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the glory of God. So how do we, how do we understand this, then, as believers? Believers. Jesus says there are those who do good because their heart is good, and there's, there's those who do evil because their heart is evil. Where, where do we fit in? Because I, I want to do good, but oftentimes I find myself doing evil. Do I have the new nature or not? That's, that's what I'm wondering. Do I have the new nature or not? Because I want to do good, but I find in myself sometimes I just don't do good. So what, what do we, how do we answer that question? Do I have the new nature? If you're in Christ... Yes. If you're in Christ, yes, you do. But your new nature does not lead to sinless perfection, at least in this life, in this world. I think we can see this really clearly from Colossians. I try not to turn to other passages, but you might you might turn there. I, I don't know why I'm turning there. I got it in my notes, but... In Colossians 3, look in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. There's this list of earthly sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth do not lie to one another well then he he gives us sort of the basis for why he's saying this seeing that you have put off the old self you have put off the old self who's the old self the old self is who i was before i came to christ the old self is the self that was dominated by the tyranny of sin. I was walking according to the course of this world, according to the principle of the air, indulging in the lust of the flesh. I was dominated. That person has been put to death, seeing that you have put, on, uh, put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Well, who's the new self? The new self is who I am in Christ. The, the power, the authority, the control of sin has been overthrown so that now I can present myself as, as a living sacrifice. I can present my body as an instrument to righteousness and not as an instrument for sin as the way Paul talks about it in Romans 6. So we have this, this new self who is capable of pleasing God. But notice what Paul says in a, there at the end of verse 10. Which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So the old man is put to death. The old man is capable, or the old man is put to death. The new man is capable of pleasing God. But we are in the process. Those are past tense. This has happened. This has happened. And you are being renewed. The old has been put off. The old nature has been put to death. The heart of stone that hated God and was at enmity with God has been replaced with a new heart that desires to please and love God. These, this put off, put on here, it's, it, these aren't commands. These are describing what happened to you. You have done this. This has happened to you already. You are a new creation. The new self, the new man has new desires to love and please God. So we should, we should have this, this confidence that in Christ we have everything we need to walk in godliness and obedience to the Lord. We have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. But man, that, that flesh, it, it, it still wars against us. So we still wrestle with the flesh. We still live in the sin-cursed world. The devil still prowls around seeking whom he may devour so Paul reminds us, we are being renewed. We are being transformed. We are being changed into what? Christ-likeness. So we still have sin that, that lurks in our, in our hearts despite being a new creation. So we strive to guard ourselves. You know, Guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. We, we, we strive to guard our hearts from all impurity, from false teaching, like the way of the Pharisee, and even from those good things that might draw our hearts away and become ultimate things. So then Jesus ends with this principle that one of, one of the clearest expressions of our heart is our speech. One of the clearest expressions or pictures of our heart is our speech. It's out of the abundance of the heart, it is the overflow of. Of the heart from which our words pour forth. The mouth is simply the spigot that you turn and and the heart is revealed. That's why Proverbs warns us that we might want to not talk and reveal ourselves. From the overflow of our heart flow our words. So unloving. Hateful, spiteful, judgmental, abusive, crass words don't come from outside of me somewhere. We, we don't say, Oh, I don't know where that came from. We do know where it came from. We just have a hard time admitting to ourselves where it came from. It came from within. So as hard as it is to admit, we, we ought to stop saying, I'm 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 sorry, I didn't mean to say that. And we ought to start saying, Please forgive me for saying what I meant. Please forgive me. That was, in my, that was in my heart. I was thinking that. And it came out because my mouth reveals my heart. So then for those in Christ who are, who are in this process of being renewed, we might ask, what does the outer man reveal? That, that's what we see. That's what we say. That's, that's what... That's, um, the fruit. What does the outer man reveal about what needs to change in my inner man? What sort of sin am I able to see in my own life that indicates there's something in my heart that needs to be repented of? Now, you might, if, if this if this whole concept of the heart is something new to you, you you might begin asking this question when you when you recognize that you've sinned outwardly, you you've sinned against. Your coworker, your spouse, and something you said. You might ask this question: What? What was I wanting? What was I desiring? You know, we could ask a bunch of other questions. We could have Dave Johnson, one of our elders, do a whole hour on great questions to ask ourselves. But but maybe we just start with this one: What was I wanting? And see if you can sort of begin to trace that, man, this sin is connected to something inside my heart. You see, th- this allows us to actually be more uh, specific in our repentance before the Lord. We're, allowed to, we're able to be more specific with how we sinned, and we're able to confess that to another person and to God himself. God, forgive me for the rude word that I said to my wife. And forgive me for desiring my own comfort above loving my wife. So you're able to repent more specifically. Father, forgive me for the gossip that I engaged in at work. I said hurtful things about another. I used my words as daggers to tear down and to destroy and not to build up. And God, forgive me for wanting to be accepted so bad that I'm willing to sin against you to go get it. Forgive me for that. You see, this is, it's hard to admit this. It's hard to admit that our sin flows from our hearts, but there's actually a ton of hope in admitting that. There's a ton of hope. Because if it flows from within me, now I know where to turn to. Now I know where to run. Now I'm in a position to turn to the one who is gracious and abounding in steadfast love. I'm able to admit that my sin is my biggest problem, and I'm able to run to God and find grace for my sin. It also means that I'm not a victim of my circumstances or my body or the impulses that were put into me as an infant. So there's, there's no hope there's no hope in the way that the world understands man. There's no hope in the way that the world understands man's behavior, man's condition, but there is hope in God's word because if I'm not a victim of my circumstances, I may not be able to change my circumstances, but I know where to run and ask God to change me and to, to apply myself in seeking to know and understand and uh, apply scripture to my own life. So again, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, and that's hope-filled. That's good news. He's freed you from the dominating tyranny of sin's power. You can please God if you are in Christ. In fact, we will please God. We will. We will demonstrate fruit if we are in Christ. He is in the process of renewing you in the spirit of your mind into the image of Christ. You are in the process of being sanctified. Why? Because of Christ. You see, ultimately, this this whole sermon, it's about Christ. And I mean Jesus' whole sermon in Luke 6, it's about Him. He is the one who is perfectly pure in heart. Imagine that every thought, every desire, every decision, every action, every word in perfect conformity with the will of the Father because Jesus is God in the flesh. So it's no surprise then as we, we studied this Sermon on the plane, that we see, it. we'll see next week the end of it, but it's bookended by these calls to come to Jesus. To come unto him. Remember several weeks ago, it's the humble, it's the repentant, it's the sorrowful that are gladly welcomed by Christ. They are forgiven of their sin and they are reconciled to God through this perfect son who was sacrificed for our sins. And in the middle of the sermon, in between these two brackets of what it means to come to Christ is what it is to become like Christ. We don't want to to miss the forest for the trees. The text isn't meant to make us so introspective that we're paralyzed from doing anything. It's meant to conform you. It's meant to direct your gaze towards Christ, the one who can transform your nature. And for many of you, most of you, he has done that for you. And it's meant to push you to be conformed then to become like the one who has saved you, that it is elevating Christ in our hearts and our lives that He is worthy to bow the knee to. He is worthy then of our imitation. after we've bowed the knee and we've, we've received a new heart. He is worthy of our imitation. We ought to strive to become like Christ because He has made this all possible. He has made it possible through His perfect life the perfect fruit of righteousness through his sacrificial death on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And so when it comes time for you to become like Jesus, you don't cast that all aside and say, now it's up to me. No, we have a role. We have a role. We fight and we strive. But ultimately, He has made this possible through His work and the gift of His Spirit. See, if the problem, if Jesus is right, and the problem lies in the heart, and Jesus is right, then our true need is for a new heart, and then the only one worth following is the one that can give you the new heart. And then trust, if you're in Christ this morning, trust that He's able to change you in ways. He is able to continue to produce in you the fruit of righteousness. He is able to change you in ways that no technique or self-help book or pop psychology could accomplish. He can do it. He has made it possible. He is working in his people to fulfill his good plan and his will. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have made a way for us to be made new in Christ. That's what we needed, not new fruit initially. We needed a new heart, and you've given us that in Christ. We rejoice in that. May we continue to pursue, then, Christlikeness as a body together. May we grow up into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.